One summer uh, when I was in college, I went on a short-term mission trip to India. I spent about two months uh, over the summer in the year 2010 uh, in the foothills of the Himalayas with 10 other naive college students. We joined up with a long-term missionary who had been serving there for about 12 years uh, by the time we had joined them, and he had served in Nepal uh, before that for many years as a missionary. He uh, had a house in a mid-sized city uh, up in the mountains, uh, but spent most of his energy trying to reach the people who lived out in these remote villages that are scattered all over the mountains. Literally, you drive anywhere and you see all these little villages dotting the whole landscape uh, in these remote mountains. There was one village in particular that he had returned to frequently and had been in contact with the people uh, for about 12 years uh, when I by the time I visited. Um, this missionary had seen short-term teams like mine come and go over a decade or more, and he had plenty of world-weary realism to balance out our youthful idealism. He had a lot of affection for us, though, uh, as his summer teams that would come through into his house. He was uh, very uh, loving and affectionate toward us, but a lot of times he expressed his affection through cynical forthrightness. One of the topics that came up, uh, and as does come up in, you know, uh, discussions around missions and things like that is how to improve the economic conditions of uh, the people living in these villages. And uh, these, vil these people in living, these, living in these villages were poor, and when I say poor, they were very, very poor. And by that I mean they probably were some of the poorest people in the entire world if we're not counting those who are in active war zones and have just been hit by uh, natural disasters. The main industry of the villages was subsistence agriculture, so they would essentially grow enough food to eat and maybe have a little bit of money to spend for other things. Um, and all the sides of the mountains were terraced into these stair-step patterns uh, so that crops could grow on the flats of these terraces. And this was probably done many generations ago, um, but uh, beyond that, no developments had been made to improve agricultural yield. This posed a big demographic problem because as the population grew, the food supply wouldn't grow with it, which would increase hunger, malnutrition, and cause most of the young men to leave their families behind to become day laborers in the big cities. One of the main problems with crop yield was loss due to pests, mainly monkeys, of all things. Uh, the same way we have deer that will wreck your garden here if given the chance, uh, they had monkeys that would come through, grab crops, and. Uh, they would lose a lot due to these pests. The long-term missionary had seen uh, this problem and offered to help fix it. This was a number of years before I met him. He talked to his supporters back home and raised the money needed to protect the fields of these villages with an electric fence. He approached uh, each family of this one particular village to ask if they wanted him to install a fence around his fields. He told them he would pay for it. He told them it would keep the monkeys away and their crops wouldn't get damaged. Of all the families he asked, though, only one took him up on his offer. So he installed the fence around this family's field, and he stayed another few days in the village, and then went back to his city house to rest and resupply. When he returned to the village a few weeks later, the electric fence was gone. Apparently, after he had left, the other families of the village, the ones who were offered the fence but said no, came by in the middle of the night and tore it down. It's a peculiar thing they would rather all be miserable together than to see anyone improve. As I've reflected on this story over the years, I can't help but think of how universal this sort of experience is. How many of us have friends or family that would rather we be miserable together with them 
instead of seeing us happy and whole. There's a term for this, it's called crab mentality. Uh, if you've ever seen one of those uh, crab fishermen shows on the Discovery Channel, you see they come in with the boats, these big pots of crabs, and if you try to take just one out, all the other crabs latch on and try to pull it back down. There's a, 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 an English proverb uh, that says, uh, misery loves company, and it's certainly true. And I'm sure most of us can testify to the truth of that. The Apostle Paul also warns of this same thing, though he has a slightly different emphasis. In 1 Corinthians 15.33, he says, Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. But in the same way that our relationships with others can bring us down, a different kind of relationship with a different kind of people can pull us up. We would be making a grave mistake to say that just because other people can pull us down, we need to just cast off all our relationships and stand on our own two feet. No, we would actually be missing out on one of the most amazing means God uses to make us holy and like Jesus if we were to do that. We're continuing our series this week, uh, How to Become Like Jesus, and we're looking at a command from the book of Hebrews. As a reminder, the central question we're asking in this series is, how do we become like Jesus? As Christians, we know Romans 8.29, which says, For those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he, meaning Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers. We also know 1 Corinthians 11.1, where the apostle says, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. We know that we're supposed to be like Jesus, but the question then becomes, well, how do we do that? Our broad answer to the question is this. We become more like Jesus as we adopt more of the lifestyle of Jesus. This means that we adopt the spiritual practices that we know that Jesus practiced. And as we practice these disciplines, things like prayer, fasting, solitude, feasting, fellowship, and many others, we are shaped to become more and more to have the character of Jesus. The specific discipline we're looking at this week is the discipline of community or fellowship. And our central point is this. Our relationships with one another in the church should help us become like Jesus. Let's look again at our sermon text, starting in verse 24. This is Hebrews 10, verse 20, starting in verse 20, 24. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. For some background, we're looking at the book of Hebrews, which was essentially a sermon uh, for Jewish Christians in the early church in the first century AD. The Christian faith started as a primarily Jewish religion in Jerusalem, and Jesus after Jesus rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, and the Holy Spirit came upon the apostles with power on the day of Pentecost. We learn about this from the book of Acts. The apostle Peter preached to the people in Jerusalem, and over 3,000 souls were added to the church on a single day. Acts 4 describes the sweetness of the fellowship the church had in those days. Quote, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that anything of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Do you see the sweetness of that fellowship? That was the sweetness of the fellowship the early church had in Jerusalem. But the gospel didn't stay in Jerusalem. It started spreading out to the whole world. 
The Apostle Paul was one of the first ever church planters. He was trained as a rabbi and formerly was a persecutor of the church before Jesus appeared to him and saved him. And the church commissioned him as a church planter and evangelist. His custom in every city he went to was to start by preaching the gospel to the Jews in their synagogues, his fellow countrymen. Many would come to believe his message, but the majority of his own people would reject it. Then he would turn to the Gentiles, that is, all the non-Jews of that city, and they would often be more open to the message and receive it with gladness. And so the churches were established from city to city in the Greek and Roman world. One thing that was true for all the churches the apostles founded was that there was only one church in each place. There wasn't a Jewish Christian church separate from the Gentile Christian church, but there was one church. Although scripture does talk about churches, plural, this was only a matter of geography. The word that's translated in our Bibles as church is, uh, in the New Testament is the Greek word ekklesia, which can mean either a gathered assembly of people or all the people who belong to that assembly. The New Testament uses the word both ways. The church is the gathered assembly of Christians who met together each Lord's Day, and the church is every Christian who belongs to that assembly. Humanly speaking, however, this set up the early church to be somewhat of a powder keg because Jews and Gentiles did not get along. Because of their religious and cultural identity, Jews were not permitted even to eat with Gentiles without becoming ceremonially unclean according to their law and traditions. And this ceremonial uncleanness was not just a private religious matter. It was a real breach of their social connection to their fellow Jews. It was a rupture in communal relationships, which required additional religious rites for cleansing and restoration. But the church was an establishment of a new community. That's why the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus that though they, being Gentiles, were once alienated from the people of Israel, uh, Ephesians 2.13 continues, but now in Christ, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, that is Jew and Gentile, are both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both, Jew and Gentile, to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So whether Jew or Gentile, Christ reconciles them to God in his body. And because both are reconciled to God, they are both reconciled to each other. There is one people of God in the New Testament, and there is one people of God today. So we come back to the command, and let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. We see from this command that our relationships with one another in the church should motivate us toward love and good works, which is to say they should motivate us to become like Jesus. The more I read the scriptures, the more I see that love and good works go hand in hand. The last time I preached to you all, I made the case that the grace of God that saves us always results in good works. Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, 
which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I also made the case that the best way for us to understand good works is to look to the Ten Commandments as a summary of the obedience God desires from us. The center of this obedience, however, is love. In Matthew 22, Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment of the law? He answered that there are two. The first is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. The second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, Jesus wasn't giving new commandments, but these were direct quotations from the Old Testament scriptures. He then concluded his answer by saying, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets, which is to say all of what we call the Old Testament scriptures. So the teaching of Jesus is that all the commands of scripture depend upon love, for their fulfillment, love for God and love for one another. The Apostle Paul teaches this same thing in Romans 13, uh, verses 8 through 10. He says, Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, he's quoting the Ten Commandments here, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. So then we come to the question, what is love? We have many strange notions about love in our culture today. Listen to any top 40 uh, pop song from the last 50 years. It's not a recent thing. Uh, and chances are the word love will make an appearance. But think about it a little and you'll realize what's being called love in those songs is really just lust or at best passion. But passion isn't the same as love. We see the same thing in our movies, our love stories, where two people are inevitably drawn to one another despite all their circumstances keeping them apart. They always end up together by the end of the movie. But the story in the movie doesn't tell what happens to those two lovers five or ten years down the line. Mostly this is because it wouldn't make a very exciting movie. But experience tells us that the passion that brings a man and woman together is never strong enough to keep them together. Love is something far more than just passion. As Christians, we often recognize this as a problem, so we move too far in the other direction. I remember at one point growing up in the church that there was a big deal made about love being a verb, and love is a verb. But this often reduced love down to loving actions. Love is then something you do. So then we would develop books and conferences about how to do love. There's a, pro there's a book, a popular book, called The Five Love Languages. And from what I understand, it's not a bad book. Um, I, I, from what I understand, there's a lot of very helpful things in there. But what is sometimes the effect of this total movement toward love as a verb is that it can reduce down love down to loving actions and separate it entirely from our emotions. I love reading old dead guys when I'm confused about things in modern culture. Thomas Watson was a 17th century preacher in London. He wrote a book about the Ten Commandments, which has an entire section in it on love. Watson defined love in this way, quote, Love is a holy fire kindled in the affections whereby a Christian is carried out strongly after God as the supreme good. I'll repeat that for you. Love 
is a holy fire kindled in the affections, whereby a Christian is carried out strongly after God as the supreme good. Watson's definition is primarily about our love for God, the first great commandment. But if you'll allow me the liberty, I'd like to modify his definition a bit to see how it applies to the second great commandment, to love one another. I want to define love in this way. Love is a holy fire kindled in the affections, whereby a Christian is carried out strongly after the good of another, knowing that God is the supreme good. We could also rephrase it this way, and this is the one I'd like to settle on. Love is sincere affection for one another, resulting in steadfast devotion to the good of another, recognizing that God is the supreme good. I'll repeat that again. Love is a sincere affection for one another, resulting in steadfast devotion to the good of another, recognizing that God is the supreme good. Love is not merely an emotion, but love is also not less than an emotion. Love is a verb, but it is also a noun. If we love one another, we must have a sincere affection for one another. Anything less is merely a hollow duty. But also when we love one another, we will seek the good of one another. If we don't, it's just sentimentality. And since the greatest good for each one of us is to love God and obey his commandments, if we love one another, we will spur one another on toward love and good deeds. So what does it mean to spur one another on? Some translations say to stir one another up or to stimulate one another toward love and good deeds. The Greek word used here is actually somewhat harsh. It's the same word translated in Acts 15 as the sharp sharp disagreement, that's the word sharp disagreement, referring to the disagreement Paul and Barnabas had which caused them to part ways. It also appears in a, in a different form in Acts 17 where it's said that the Apostle Paul was provoked, there's our word, he was provoked in his spirit when he saw that the city of Athens was full of idols. It's also closely related to the word sharpen as in uh, Proverbs 27, 17, as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. From this, we can make a number of observations. First, spurring on is a vigorous, intensive activity. It's not passive. It's not something subtle. It doesn't go unnoticed. Second, spurring on is always toward something. It isn't in itself good or bad, but whether it is good or bad depends on what the spurring on is toward. So in 1 Corinthians 13.5, where that same word appears, uh, the text says that love is not provoked, that's the word, that, but provoked in the sense of provoked to anger. But in our sermon text, the command is to, we could say, provoke one another toward love and good deeds. So this same spurring on can be either for good or for ill, but it is an intensive activity. Third, in this, third, uh, in this text specifically, the spurring on is something intentional. The text says, let us consider how to spur one another on. The command isn't just to spur one another on, but to consider how to spur one another on. There's an intentionality here. It is a thinking that results in a doing. 
This considering how is a matter of thinking about what would be most effective, most edifying, most motivating for our brother or sister to spur them on. What will light a fire underneath my brother or sister? What will motivate them best toward love and good deeds? Do they need encouragement to exercise the gifts that they have with confidence? Do they need admonishment to shake them from laziness or apathy? Do they need a warning from falling into sin? Jeff shared with us last week in our body lifetime the different ways uh, that the New Testament speaks of us speaking to one another. Um, he laid out six uh, ways. There, there might be more, or, or he might combine some. Or, but the idea is there's this whole range of ways that we speak to each other, everything from encouragement to edify each other, to build each other up, to encourage one another in what we're already doing. Um, there's admonishment uh, where there's a, a sense of correction or rebuke where there's a strong sense of correction. Um, and there's warning, which is warning someone who is in sin to dissuade them from the course that they are on. We can bring considering into that, we, and, and we must be speaking to each other in all of these ways, but this considering is a matter of considering what word is needed for my brother or my sister in the right context. Would a word of rebuke shake them awake or crush them? Would a word of peace comfort them or confirm them in some sin that they are in. These are things we need to consider. And do we consider one another in this way? I have to confess to you that I don't consider you all in this way as often as I should. How much spiritual growth are we missing out on by each of us pursuing holiness on our own without considering how to spur one another on toward that end? Let us take some time to consider this together. How can we spur one another on toward love and good deeds? I think we find the main method for this in the next verse of our text. Verse 25 says, Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another. In the immediate context of the passage, remember that Paul is addressing Jewish Christians who were inclined not to continue meeting with their Gentile brothers and sisters in Christ. The point we need to make first is this. Whatever natural barriers we have to meeting together are far less significant than the natural barriers that existed between Jew and Gentile in those days. I'm going to repeat that again. Whatever natural barriers we have to meeting together are far less significant than the natural barriers between Jew and Gentile in those days. And because Christ removed the dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile, as we read earlier, how much more has he torn down the differences that we have with one another? Since Christ was able to unite Jew and Gentile in himself, how much more is he able to unite us together in himself, despite our differences of income, family history, politics, ethnicity, stage of life, or whatever else would naturally divide us? And since we know that this is true, how much more should we not neglect meeting together? In our church, we have three main occasions for meeting together, and I'd like to look at each of these in turn. Also, I'd like to encourage you to participate in all three of these. 
First, we have our Sunday gatherings, and since I can see all of you are here today, I'm sure you're already aware of them. But still, I want to challenge us in this regard. When we meet together each Sunday, do we come as consumers or as participants? Do we come to observe a ritual before going home to watch football, or do we come to really share of ourselves? Do you desire to be among the people of God, or do you desire to slip in and out with as little disruption to your weekend as possible? Does our Sunday worship feel shallow and ineffective because you have already decided in your heart to let it disrupt your life as little as possible? Do you have a sincere affection for your brothers and sisters in Christ? Paul wrote to the Philippian church, for God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Does Sunday worship feel cold to you because you are bringing with you a cold affection for the saints of God? These are hard questions and we each need to grapple with them. The second occasion we have for meeting together in our church is our weekly connecting groups. Currently we just have one, but Lord willing we will have more. This is a time where we meet together to eat together and fellowship with one another. We set aside time to talk with each other about our lives and to discuss what God has been teaching us. We pray for one another and bear one another's burdens. If you're not part of a connecting group, I want to challenge you to join us this Tuesday evening. This is a means God has given you to become more like Jesus. Isn't that worth giving up one evening per week? Third, we have our DNA groups. This is something we're still working on establishing, though we do have a couple right now. This is a time where we meet together in groups of three or four and discuss what God is teaching us, how it affects us, and encourage one another to action. Because these are the smallest groups, they allow for the most intimacy, which can make these gatherings both the most impactful and the most difficult. A pastor by the name of Tim Bailey wrote this about fellowship and intimacy. We think of fellowship as warm and fuzzy, but actually, it's hard. Outside the grace of the Holy Spirit, intimacy can be <coughs> intolerable. Married couples divorce because of intimacy, because intimacy is difficult. People leave small groups and churches because of intimacy. So I would ask you, would you be willing to take up the hard work of intimacy with your brothers and sisters in Christ? Would you be willing to see what the Holy Spirit can accomplish in you by giving yourself to this work? Verse 25 of our sermon text concludes with a reason for all that came before. And all the more as you see the day approaching. The day that this text says is approaching is the day of the Lord. This is a day spoken of in scripture as a day of judgment when God visits a nation to judge it for its sins. The Old Testament tells us of many different instances all called the day of the Lord when God visited judgment on a nation because of its sins. The prophet Obadiah spoke of it saying, the day of the Lord is near upon all nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. And this day was very near for uh, the Jewish Christians who heard our sermon text. In the year AD 70, the Romans attacked Jerusalem in response to a Jewish uprising against the empire. 
Jerusalem was almost completely destroyed and the temple was left a smoldering ruin. Over one million Jews died in the fighting and another almost 100,000 were captured and put into slavery. This all happened within the lifetime of the hearers of our, the original hearers of our sermon text. Many of those who turned back from the way of Jesus to return to the old ways, the way of the temple and the sacrifices, were killed by the sword or carried away into slavery. Those who turned back from Jesus as their high priest ended up with no priesthood or temple at all. Those who turned back from meeting together with, their, with the Gentile Christians to enjoy fellowship with their natural countrymen ended up with no country at all. The day of the Lord had come and their deeds returned on their own heads. But this was not the final day of the Lord. There remains a day yet still in the future. 2 Peter 3.10 says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. The earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Dear friends, the day of the Lord is approaching. Christ will return to the earth to judge the living and the dead according to their deeds. Is this a comfort to you, or does it make you afraid? God has overlooked the times of our ignorance when we didn't know him and didn't walk with him. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by Jesus, the man whom he appointed. If the day of the Lord causes you fear, cry out for Jesus to save you. He bore our sins in his flesh and he raised and he was raised again from the dead so that we who die with him will be raised with him in his resurrection. He came that we might have everlasting life. He came that we might be freed from our bondage to sin. He came that we might be comforted by his return. In Christ, we have been given every provision needed for this life and the life to come. He gave us his word that we would be instructed how to love him and obey his commands. He gave us his spirit that our hearts would be alive to him, loving him and one another. And he gave us one another that we would spur one another on to love and good deeds. Pray with me. Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, you have set a day on which you will judge all the nations you will judge your people. Your word tells us that you have turned all judgment over to Christ. You tell us that he will come as a rider on a white horse with a sharp two-edged sword coming from his mouth with robes dipped in blood and that he will make war in righteousness and judge the nations for their sin. Father, we pray that we would be your people, pure and undefiled. We thank you that we have access to this confidence and this comfort through Christ, that we would be united with him in his death and also united with him in his resurrection. Lord, we can't do this, but we know you can do, us, do this. Lord, we know you are, you are making a people who are zealous for good works, and we pray that we would be that people and we would encourage one another to that end. Father, be with us and give us these good gifts. We ask them all in Jesus' name.
Amen.